Good morning. As um, Craig has mentioned, we've lost a dear friend this last week. But I can tell you something for sure. He had the hope of Christ in his life. And being there in the last moments, I can honestly tell you, Jesus was there with us. And so we know where he's at. He has his healing. And that's a praise to God. We will have services at a later time. Those dates have not been given yet, but we'll let you know as soon as that celebration of life takes place. So all of us can celebrate together. In the meantime, we are going to continue on in our series. For those of you who may be joining us for the first time online or first time here, uh, while we're happy that you are here, we are in the middle of a series right now where we're trying to go through the Bible as a congregation in five years. And we're right at the halfway mark, which is really neat. Um, so we've been doing this about two and a half years now. Um, and this week, our study is from 1 Kings uh, chapter 17 through 22. And what we do as a congregation is that we read the Word of God together for six days during the week. And our, our sermon, our message, comes from uh, the passages that we've read together as a congregation, either in whole or in part. And it gives us a greater understanding of the Word of God, better understanding of what Jesus has done for us and how we get to see Jesus through almost every page of the Bible. It's really, really cool. So we are hoping that you guys will join us in that journey. If you would like to follow us along with that, if you have not done that before, you can text the letters PDF to 207-4443 area code 505, and we will make sure that you guys get a, an electronic copy of what we're reading. If you're here today, you do not have one, you want a hard copy, uh, we'll have some over at the information desk, and you can follow along with us in the coming weeks. Um, today's sermon is called, A Little Bit of Leaven is Never Enough, based upon this passage of Scripture. This is a really interesting passage, these uh, six chapters that we've read this past week, because it spends all of this time in the northern kingdom. Um, uh, we have spent a lot of time in the United Kingdom under under Saul, under David, and then under Solomon. Last week we saw the splitting of those kingdoms. And we're going to see a focus that kind of goes back and forth between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah that has taken place. Many of these chapters are very familiar to us because these six chapters focus during the life of King Ahab and the prophet Elijah. Okay, And many of these stories we know, and they probably were very familiar to you as you read this week. Chapter 17 was about Elijah and the drought that was proclaimed, the widow that, that he went to stay with, the son that, that eventually died and was raised by God through Elijah. 1 Kings 18 happens three and a half years later as this drought comes to an end. And we see the showdown of the prophets of Baal and uh, the prophet Elijah. Uh, And that ends with the death of all of the prophets of Baal as God shows himself true. 1 Kings 19, we see Elijah fleeing because Queen Jezebel has has promised that she's going to kill him. Um, And so Elijah flees and is encouraged by God. 
Uh, and here's an interesting thing. One of the things that's said that we, we talk about many times, and I know I've glossed over it many times without giving it much thought. Oftentimes when we read these passages of Israel, we're not thinking northern kingdom. Maybe you've made the same mistake I have and just thought of the entire nation of Israel. But remember, there are two nations here. And that northern nation of Israel would end up having really no kings that were considered good in God's sight. And yet, it's in the midst of that unfaithfulness that that Elijah is promised by God that there are 7,000 people in Israel in the northern kingdom that have not bowed their knee to Baal or kissed the ring of the king or or following all those maddening plans, you know, but they, they've been reserved for himself to give Elijah, you know, encouragement that even in the midst of an ungodly kingdom, godly people still reside there. He's told by God to anoint Haziel king over Aram, Jehu king over Israel, and Elisha to be prophet after Elijah is gone. First Kings 20 is what we're going to look at today. So I'm going to skip over that. But First Kings 21 is about Naboth's vineyard. And how uh, King Ahab wanted uh, a vineyard and a piece of property that wasn't supposed to be his. And he ended up ha- having a murder done on, on behalf of his wife who got that vineyard for him. And then 1 Kings 22 is Micaiah's prophecy against Ahab and Ahab's enticement to go to his death in battle. And this is how 1 Kings ends. But we're going to look at today a passage of scripture, 1 Kings chapter 20. An account that we're not as familiar with. All of these other accounts, to some extent, I'm sure some of you have said, yeah, I, I recognize that one. I recognize that one. I've heard of that one before. But chapter 20 kind of gets glossed over, and there's so many important things in this chapter. We're going to look at it together and not gloss over it. So if you will, open your Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 20. We're going to read the entire thing together. We're going to be in a lot of places in Scripture, so have your Bibles, not just just what we've been reading all week, but your Bibles ready as we're going to be perusing the Scriptures with a lot of things that are said here. We're just going to read the entirety of the chapter together. Now Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mustered his entire army accompanied by 32 kings with their horses and chariots, and he went up and besieged Samaria and attacked it. He sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, saying, This is what Ben-Hadad says, Your silver and gold are mine, and the best of your wives and children are mine. And the king of Israel answered, Just as you say, my lord the king, and I and all I have is yours. The messengers came again and said, This is what Ben-Hadad says. I sent to demand your silver and gold, your wives and children, but about this time tomorrow I'm going to send my officials to search your palace and the houses of your officials, and they will seize everything you value and carry it away. The king of Israel summoned all the elders of the land and said to them, See how this man is looking for trouble? When he sent for my wives and my children, my silver and my gold, I did not refuse him. The elders and the people all answered, don't listen to him or agree to his demands. So he replied to Ben-Hadad's messengers, tell my lord the king, your servant will do all you demanded the first time, but this demand I cannot meet. And they left and took answer back to Ben-Hadad. Then Ben-Hadad sent another message to Ahab, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if enough dust remains in Samaria to give each of my men a handful. The king of Israel answered, Tell him, one who puts on his armor should not boast like one who takes it off. 
Abinadad heard this message and while he and the kings were drinking in their tents and he ordered his men prepared to attack. And so they prepared to attack the city. Meanwhile, a prophet came to Ahab, king of Israel, and announced, this is what the Lord says. Do you see this vast army? I will give it into your hand today. And then you will know that I am the Lord. But who will do this, asked Ahab. And the prophet replied, this is what the Lord says. The young officers of the provincial commanders will do it. And, and who will start the battle, he asked. And the prophet answered, you will. So Ahab summoned the young officers of the provincial commanders, 232 men. Then he assembled all the rest of the Israelites, 7,000 in all. And they set out at noon while Ben-Adad and the 32 kings allied with him were in their tents getting drunk. The young officers of the provincial commanders went out first. Now Ben-Adad had dispatched scouts who reported men are advancing from Samaria. And he said, if they've come out for peace, and if they've come out for war, take them alive. The officers of the provincial commanders marched out of the city with the army behind them. And each one struck down his opponent. And at that, the Armenians fled with the Israelites in pursuit. But Ben-Adad, king of Aram, escaped on horseback with some of his horsemen. The king of Israel advanced and overpowered the horses and chariots and inflicted heavy losses on the Armenians. Afterwards, the prophet came to the king of Israel and said, Strengthen your position and see what must be done. Because what? Because next spring the king of Aram will attack you again. Meanwhile, the officials of the king of Aram advised him, their gods are the gods of the hills. That's why they were too strong for us. But if we fight them on the plain, surely we will be stronger than they. Do this. Remove all the kings from their commands and replace them with other officers. You must also raise an army like the one you lost. Horse for horse and chariot for chariot so that we can fight Israel on the plains. Then surely we will be stronger than they. He agreed with them and acted accordingly. Next spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Armenians and went up to Aphek to fight, the, to fight against Israel. And when the Israelites were also mustered and given provisions, they marched out to meet them. And the Israelites camped opposite them like two small flocks of goats while the Armenians covered the countryside. And the man of God came up and told the king of Israel, this is what the Lord says. Because the Armenians think the Lord is the God of the hills and not the God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands and you will know that I am the Lord. For seven days they camped opposite one another. And on the seventh day the battle was joined. The Israelites inflicted a hundred thousand casualties on the Armenian foot soldiers in one day. And the rest of them escaped to the city of Aphek where the wall collapsed on 27,000 of them. And Ben-Hadad fled from the city and hid in an inner room. And his officials said to him, look, we've heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful. Let us go to the king of Israel with sackcloth around our waist and ropes around our heads. Perhaps he will spare your life. Wearing sackcloth around their waist and ropes around their heads, they went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And the king answered, Is he still alive? He is my brother. The men took this as a good sign and were quick to pick up his word. Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad, they said. Go and get him, the king said. And when Ben-Hadad came out, Ahab had him come up to his chariot. I will return the cities my father took from your father, Ben-Hadad offered. You may set up your own market areas in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. Nahab said, on the basis of this treaty, I will set you free. So he made a treaty with them and let him go. 
By the word of the Lord, one of the sons of the prophets said to his companion, Strike me with your weapon, but the man refused. So the prophet said, Because you have not obeyed the Lord, as soon as you leave me, a lion will kill you. And after a man went away, the lion found him and killed him. The prophet found another man and said, Strike me, please. So the man struck him and wounded him. And the prophet went and stood by the road waiting for the king. He disguised himself with a headband down over his eyes. As the king passed by, the prophet called out to him, Your servant went into the thick of battle and someone came to me with a captive and said, Guard this man. If he's missing, it will be your life for his life. Or you must pay a talent of silver. And while your servant was busy here and there, the man disappeared. That is your sentence, the king of Israel said. You have pronounced it yourself. Then the prophet quickly removed the headband from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to the king, this is what the Lord says. You have set free a man I determined should die. Therefore, it is your life for his life. Your people for his people. Sullen and angry, the king of Israel went to his place in Samaria. What an interesting passage of scripture, isn't it? Let's bring some clarity to some of the things that probably don't make a whole lot of sense. Um, one of the things that said in, in verse 3 when uh, Ben-Hadad starts making demands to King Ahab is he says to them, your silver and gold are mine, the best of your wives and your children are mine. And King Ahab says, yes, it is as you say. That sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Like, wow, you gave him just a lot of things right there. This was a figurative form of speech basically saying that we are going to be under you. We're going to pay you a tribute, okay? You're stronger than I am. You've come out with a show of force. You've got 32 kings that are there, all these people who are surrounding me. So we're going to, so that you kind of leave us alone, we're going to let you have whatever. We'll be, we'll pay you some money, leave us alone. This is tribute. This is what was being said. And then they upped the ante, you know, and they said, not only are we going to do that, we're going to come into your city and basically pillage you. We're, we're basically going to take what we want now. It's not just going to be a tribute. It's now going to be, we're taking everything. We're going to take over. And at this, King Ahab says, um, no, I don't think so. And he goes and tells the people, look, this is what I told him. I said, look, we'll pay tribute. We realize we may not be stronger than you. So we'll pay you the tribute. But you just coming in and ransacking us, I don't think so. I don't think so. And so they start mounting uh, armies up, and he says, you know, you, you hear the threat that comes on, and, and King Ahab responds with the threat. One, who's putting on his honor, armor on, should not be boasting as if he's taking it off. And basically he's saying, don't count your chickens before they hatch. You haven't won anything yet. Okay? It's a really interesting account. And then we, we see that God comes in and intervenes in two different occasions. One during this battle and one in the next spring when he knows that the king of Aram is going to attack again. To show that he is God over the valleys and over the plains. He's Lord over all. And it's just a really strange account, don't you guys think? Because it's, it's totally unexpected through all of this. Well, what can we learn from this passage of Scripture? I think there's three things in general that we learn from this passage of Scripture as we break things down a little bit. Number one is this. Bullies are never satisfied with what they have. Bullies are never satisfied with what they have. How many of you have ever watched the movie A Bug's Life? Raise your hand if you've watched the movie The Bug's Life. If you haven't, it's a Pixar Disney movie. It's awesome. You should watch it. 
Okay? It's really fun. And in this movie, you have grasshoppers terrorizing ants. I know that doesn't really happen in real life. I have looked many times in my backyard to see a grasshopper treat an ant in a bad way. I've never seen it happen. Never. So I think it might be a fictional account. I'm just saying. Um, but we're looking in this, in this whole idea. The whole premise of a bug's life comes down to this. You have these mean grasshoppers who have terrorized this, this colony of ants for their food that comes up. So they, they bring this offering of food. It's much like a tribute. We're going to bring this tribute for these grasshoppers. So they leave us alone. We'll do that and then we'll gather for ourselves for the rest of the summer. Well, what happens in the movie, and if you haven't seen it, I'm spoiling it for you. It's okay. Um, There's one ant that stands up to the other ones. And through, through an unfortunate circumstance, the offering is lost, which causes this one ant named Flick to stand up to the head of the grasshoppers named, ironically, Hopper. Um, so Hopper is... And his crew leave by making this threat. You know, you have to come up with twice as much food. And and, and if you don't, then we're going to come back and it's going to be bad. And Hopper goes back to his little island paradise, wherever it's at. You think it's in Mexico someplace because they're going, okay, ah, so they're doing like Mexican songs there. It's it's funny. Um, And while they're there, they're saying, you know, we have more than enough food for ourselves right here. Why should we go back? Because we don't want to go back. It's about, it's nearly the rainy season and that's when things get bad for everybody. We're here. We're in paradise. We have all the food we need. And I said, well, it's really about controlling those ants and showing order. And it's really interesting because the bullies weren't satisfied with what they had. They wanted and needed to have more. You know what's so funny? That's, while an imperfect comparison, is that not what we're seeing from Ben-Hadad right here? I'm willing to give you tribute. Yes, you're greater than me. I'll give you tribute, but I want more. I want control of your territory. I want it all. I want everything that you're going to give me. And is that not what we're seeing today? You know, on, on the chance that some of you are probably paying attention to United States events, right? We've had universal cries for justice in our cities right now, haven't we? Right? We have seen unrighteous actions against an individual named George Floyd that have deteriorated to unrighteous demands from a mob that now says that justice for George Floyd isn't enough. Isn't that interesting? You know, groups like Black Lives Matter are no longer seeking justice if they ever were, but using the situation to move forward with their agenda. Do you know what Black Lives Matter has on their agenda? What's on their website? Some of you do. Some of you may not. So let me, let me tell you what it is because it sounds like a great mantra. And I think what we've seen on hashtags on social media because of the injustice that's there, a lot of people have gotten behind just the slogan of Black Lives Matter, right? But, and because it sounds like, oh, absolutely, we should say stuff like that. But what do they really stand for? Well, here are some of the things that they stand for. The defunding of the police. Unlimited access to abortion. Support of the LGBTQ agenda and the destruction of the nuclear family. This this is their mission statement, by the way. This is their purpose. You can go to their site. That's you can just check it out for yourself. This is what it says. 
And the irony is that those four things that we're talking about would do more destruction for the black community than anything else. All of those things. We have a 70 to 80% divorce rate, fatherless homes within the black community. They think that's a good thing. And how ironic that the pleas of justice that started universally by everybody who was horrified by the video that was there of an unrighteous action of a handful of police officers who either watched or perpetrated has turned into all of these unrighteous mantras. The anger has transformed to rioting and looting in the very areas that can least afford it as strong arm as a strong arm tactic for the support of their agenda. Are we not seeing the same thing? Well, that's not enough. It's not enough just to grant justice. Now we need these other demands. And if we don't get those demands, we're going to make these inner cities pay the very ones who are affected most by the very demands of justice in the first place. Right? See, this agenda ultimately will hurt the very ones that through their namesake, they seemingly wish to support. I want to tell you guys, hundreds of millions of dollars have been funneled into the Black Lives Matter that's supporting that agenda. And an uninformed Christian populace has contributed to those things. And all of those things are against God's word. All of them. You guys might say this is a political statement. It's not a political statement. This is a moral statement. You are believers in Jesus Christ. You're not supposed to be supporting the death of the unborn. You're not supposed to be supporting the destruction of the family unit that God has placed together as man and woman for the purpose of the family to build up society. You're not supposed to wish for the lack of justice in this world that will happen with the vacancy of defunding police departments across the nation. None of those things are righteous causes. None of those things will find its support in Scripture. Against injustice? Yes, absolutely. We want biblical justice. But not at the expense of unrighteousness that God will not support. Same thing. Same thing happened there. Number two, second thing here. We need to know from this passage, God will use unrighteous or even evil people to accomplish his purpose for the glory of his name. Make no mistake, King Ahab was an exceptionally evil person. First Kings chapter 21 in the account with Naboth, 25, verses 25 and 26. In parentheses, kind of as an aside so you understand the character of Ahab, it says this. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. And yet Ahab is... The one who is delivering the people of Israel from the king of Aram in two different instances here. God gives him the victory both times. Why? 
Because God will use whoever he wants so his, his name will be great. The whole contention for the people of Aram was this. That their God is the God of the hills, of the mountains. Because Samaria was placed on top of a mountain. It was very, very fortified. Very, very hard to get to. And therefore they said, oh, we fought them on their territory where their God was. We're going to go fight them in the valley where our God's going to be stronger than their God. And God took up the challenge, took offense to that, said, I am the only God that there is. I am the God of the valleys. I am the God of the mountains. I am the one and only Lord of all. I will give you victory, though you are an evil man, over both of these attacks against my people. God will use the unrighteous or even even evil people to accomplish his purpose for the glory of his name. We see this happen throughout the scriptures. We see that God uses kings that rarely or never acknowledge his sovereignty. If you look back in Exodus chapter 9, very interesting passage of scripture. I've always thought it was interesting because it's quoted again in Romans chapter 8. Or excuse me, Romans chapter 9. Um, But we're talking about the plagues of Egypt that are coming down. And as these plagues are coming down, God kind of gives this final ultimatum warning to Pharaoh. And in verse 15 he says, For by now I could have stretched out my hand. This is Exodus 9.15. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You know who he's speaking to? This isn't Moses. This is Pharaoh he's talking to. And he repeats it in Romans chapter 9 saying, look, God raised him up. This Pharaoh for that purpose that God's name would be made great. Even though Pharaoh is going to resist God, resist God, resist God to the point that God just says, I'm going to harden your own heart. I'm going to harden your heart because you just keep hardening it against me. But my name will be made great whether you're going to praise me or not. God will use unrighteous or evil people to accomplish his purpose for the glory of his name. Nebuchadnezzar, who we will read about a little bit later as we come into kings, he's the one who's going to ultimately go and destroy the kingdom, the lower kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah. And in Jeremiah chapter 25. Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned many, many times in the scriptures, especially in the life of Jeremiah, especially in in the end of Kings as we're going to be looking at together. But in Jeremiah 25, 9, I think we have, um, I think what we have here is, is a good example of this passage of scripture. So verses 9 and 10 says this, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. And I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and everlasting ruin. And I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of the bride and the bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. And so we see in this passage of scripture, you know what God calls Nebuchadnezzar? My servant. He's my servant. I will use who I want to use for my own purposes. That's, that's what God is doing. And he's going to use an evil king, a king who does not know God, to punish the people who are supposed to know God by casting them out. We can also see it in Isaiah chapter 45 as we hear about 
a king whose name was going to be Cyrus. It's 150 years before he he's around. Actually, it's longer than that. But it's 150 years at least before he's around. And yet God is proclaiming that he's going to use this man to bring his people back from captivity. So he says, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all of his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. But not for a price or a reward, says the Lord Almighty. And so we have another king who will not acknowledge God, doesn't know God. And yet God is going to use him for his purposes so that his name might be great. We see that everywhere. See, all of this is part of the promise found in the covenant in Deuteronomy 28 when he says, look, when you disobey me, I will raise up people to come and punish you for your disobedience to me. That's my paraphrase, but go read the chapter. It's there. It's 100% there. Last year we covered it in detail together. See, we ultimately see this idea that God can use Anybody, the evil, the unrighteous person to accomplish his purpose through even the death of Jesus Christ. If we look in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, we're at the day of Pentecost and Peter is speaking with more boldness than he's ever spoken all of his life because the Holy Spirit has come down and empowered him. He says, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Again, we look at this passage of scripture and as as we look at it right here, guess what? God used evil men that were handed, handed Jesus over to be crucified. He used them for his purpose that God's name may be great through the name of Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. So God will use unrighteous or even evil people to accomplish his purpose for the glory of his name. So I don't need to worry about Ahab and how evil he was. God has a right to use anybody, any way, any time that he might receive glory. Period. Period. Including the current circumstances we might find ourselves in now. Should give us hope. Number three. Mostly obedient is still disobedient, oftentimes with terrible consequences. You know, throughout the scriptures, as we've been studying, especially as we've been going through the histories, we see those whose hearts are not fully devoted to God, and then they make terrible mistakes because they want to compromise. Here, King Ahab strikes a deal with King Ben-Hadad and allows him to go free in exchange for territory and the right to set up markets in Damascus. Oh, in other words, basically, King Ahab has turned the tables on him. Instead of me getting, you're getting my tribute, now I'm going to kind of get your tribute, right? You're going to be kind of a vassal under me. You're going to give me my cities back, and I'm going to be able to set up shop in your big city and, and do business with you there and get some money back. Kind of reminds us of King Saul with King Agag, doesn't it? He was supposed to kill him in battle. You guys remember this? Supposed to not leave anybody alive. And he kept all the best of the sheep and all the best of the cattle. Supposedly for sacrifice to the Lord your God. 
he would say to Samuel. And I really wonder if it's just because he was caught that he said those things. Oh, no, no, I was going to do it. I was going to do it. See, all this is coming back. I wasn't going to keep it for myself. I was going to sacrifice it all. Why is King Agag still alive? Didn't I tell you to kill everybody? And King Agag thought he was going to be spared in the same way that King Ben-Hadad had done. The time of death has passed me. Unfortunately for him, Samuel was there to administer that justice. But he would turn around and he would tell Saul that your kingdom is going to be torn from you and given to another who will obey me wholeheartedly. See, a little bit of disobedience caused the kingdom to be ripped from Saul and put into the hands of David. And here, we have consequences as well. Because of the wickedness and disobedience of King Ahab, the northern kingdom is doomed to destruction according to the word of the Lord. You look at that last verse that we're looking at in 1 Kings chapter 20. Or second to last verse, excuse me. He said, the prophet who was there, he said, this is what the Lord says. You've set free a man I had determined should die. Therefore, it is your life for his life, your people for his people. And the northern kingdom is given the judgment of God. Now, it would take many generations for that to take place. But you look, when you look throughout what we're going to read in Kings and the furtherance of, it, of things going on, everything is compared to the sin of King Ahab. It talks about the, king, the, the idols that were set up by, by Jeroboam in the northern part of Israel and the southern part of Israel. But when it talks about the evilness of why Israel is going to be overthrown, they go back and they talk about the sin of King Ahab. As a matter of fact, when it comes to the evil king in the southern kingdom of Judah... That evil king that would bring judgment to the nation of Judah in the same way that Ahab is bringing judgment to the northern uh, nation of Israel. He's compared to Ahab. If you'll turn with me to 2 Kings, we'll get to it later on. But just so you guys get a preview of what's going on in this, in this, uh, in this history that's happening. But 2 Kings chapter 21 verses 11 through 15 says Manasseh. King of Judah has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Isn't that exactly what we just read about Ahab? That he had done more than the Amorites who had preceded him? Verse 12, therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I am going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. And I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and hand them over to their enemies. They will be looted and plundered by all of their foes because they have done evil in my eyes and have provoked me to anger from the day their forefathers came out of Egypt until this day. How interesting that when judgment comes down and will ultimately come down on the southern kingdom because of the unrighteous actions of Manasseh, he is compared directly to the house of of Ahab. And he says, I will measure out my plumb line the exact same way I did against Samaria. This was a measuring rod in which they were looking to see what would measure. And the worse you were, the lower you were on that list. Okay? 
And Ahab was really low. And guess what? Manasseh was really low too. To the point of saying, as I pass judgment on Ahab and the northern kingdom, I'm now passing judgment on Judah and the southern kingdom because of your actions. Didn't happen in Manasseh's lifetime either. But the die and the cast had been set. Right? It's going to happen now. Now it's just a matter of time. Judgment's coming. Your life for his life. Your people for his people. It's a pretty, pretty dangerous switch for disobedience, don't you think? Wasn't that big of a deal, right? I mean, I killed 100,000 of them. 27,000 more of them died when we pushed down that. I mean, they've been decimated. Isn't that enough? Mostly obedient in God's eyes is still disobedient. You and I would do well to recognize that for real. We play around with sin as if it's not dangerous, as if it's not something that Jesus really died for. I don't care whether it's a white lie and it's the only one you've ever told your entire life. Jesus died for that because it separated you from God. You and I play with sin, even though we don't measure up, as if it's not going to come back and bite us. See, Galatians chapter 5 talks about this danger that that sinfulness has in our lives, which is ironic that Craig mentioned Galatians 5. It starts in that with that verse, you know, it's for freedom's sake that Christ has set us free. And to set things up in Galatians chapter 5, Paul is talking to Galatian believers who have been told that, you know what, you believe in Jesus, that's great, but what you really need to do is get circumcised now in order to, to become full-fledged Jews. It, it, was, it was this false premise of peace that would bridge the gap between the Jew and the Gentile. Well, now Jesus is that gap so that you can become full-fledged Jews. And Paul is railing against that throughout the entirety of the Galatian narrative by saying, look, if you get circumcised, Christ is of no benefit to you whatsoever. You have repudiated grace. You are now under the law. And it's a very strong letter. It's the only letter that he has with no great introduction. He just jumps right in because he's worried about the salvation of their souls because of a teaching that has come in that is in, in opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that little bit of giving in is not a little bit of giving in. It has drastic consequences. And so he says in verse 5, But by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You're running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. And I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Paul's teaching is like, I I know you want to compromise with these people for the sake of peace. But this this little bit of yeast is going to work its way through the entire dough. It's going to make it all not the same anymore. It gets changed entirely by working that yeast through the dough. You get leavened bread rather than unleavened bread. It looks totally different. 
It's not how God has created you to be. I can't stand with this over here because being disobedient in this area, as small as it may be, starts working its way in my life. Going back to that first point, that whole idea that bullies are never satisfied with what they have. If you just think about it, the whole idea of aligning yourself with an organization that you have only 5% in common with their cause means 95% of what they stand for is totally against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you don't think that's going to work its way into your personal theology, you're a fool. You and I are called to be followers, ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, following him and him alone. There is no other gospel. It is not in comparison of anything else. And I will not compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ for the appeasement of peace for somebody else just so that I don't have to fight with them concerning one issue we might agree on. See, the gospel, the word of God, calls contentious the one who changes the gospel of Jesus Christ to something that it's not. He doesn't call the argument itself contentious. Paul is talking to the, about the one who is throwing people in disarray as the one who's causing contention. He's not. He's presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so here in this place, we're going to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uncompromised. I don't care what the world says. You know why? Because the world's a bully. Because you think you appease them in one area, they're going to be happy with you? No, they're going to make you appease in another area. And appease in another area. And appease in another area. Until you have no more gospel to share with the world around you. Because Jesus has been made nothing like the Jesus and the word of God. And at that point, you have to ask yourself, am I even a believer in Christ anymore? This was the downfall of Ahab. Ahab was given. Think about what Ahab was given. He was shown the miraculous sign of fire from heaven in front of the 450 prophets of Baal. He saw it with his own eyes. Which one is God? Man, he knew who God was. God even sided with him for his namesake in these two battles with the king of Aram. Why? So that God's name would be made great. And you know what you see? A disobedient Ahab. That would not just cost him his life. But cost the life of the people of Israel that would go off into slavery because of his sin, because of his disobedience. You know, what do we do in the case of our disobedience? You and I playing around with sin as if it doesn't matter to God. Jesus died for that. How can we live in it any longer, we're asked? Are we looking to appease the world around us. Realize, I hope that you realize if you do, you'll have to keep appeasing. And you'll have to keep appeasing in order to keep the peace. That's not really any peace at all. It's not the peace that Jesus promised. You know, 
peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I don't give as the world gives. So don't expect Jesus' peace to be an absence of conflict. There's nothing in the scripture that says that. It's the peace of knowing that you're following the one who died for your sins, who has eternal life offered for you and for all who would believe. He's the answer to our problem of sin. Whatever that sin is, unrighteousness, injustice, racism, you name it, Jesus truly is the answer. And if he's not the answer in this life, at the judgment seat of Christ, every right will be made, every wrong will be made right, and everybody will know and bow at the knee of Jesus as Lord and Lord and King of Kings to the glory of God the Father. And there'll be no compromise. There'll be no appeasement. Because the appeasement happened in one place and one place only on the cross 2,000 years ago for your and my sin. There's no other answer. None. None for the heart of man. None. Zero. Nada. None I can give you for society. None. You and I cannot compromise on the gospel of Jesus Christ for the appeasement of the world or we'll end up with no gospel at all. Let's not be like King Ahab. Let's be like King David. Let's be like the disciples who gave up all to follow Jesus. Let's be like those who understood that life is found in no other but Jesus Christ. And if we found ourselves to be disobedient, you know what? Our answer is the same. Repent. Turn away. Come back to Christ. Live for him. It's the only way. It's the only way. That we're going to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. It's the only way we're going to know that he's our Lord and Lord of all. Those who know Jesus and love Jesus got to walk as Jesus did, as it says in 1 John chapter 2. No compromise. No appeasement for a world that doesn't know Jesus. We got to show them Jesus whether they want to see him or not. Because in him and in him alone is life and life eternal. Would you stand with me? A little leaven is never enough. You got a little bit of that in your life? A little bit of compromise? Compromise either in the way you're living or the message that you're exposing to the world around you? It's only one answer. It's repentance through Jesus Christ who wants to give you life and give it to the full. It's the only answer for our problems. Only answer for the deepest things in our hearts. If you don't know that peace that Christ gives, if you've been hanging on to a worldly type of peace that continues to ask for more and more compromise on your part, you can have peace today through Jesus. You can have peace today through Jesus. But you got to live that uncompromised life. You got to share that uncompromised message. Even if it offends those around, because only in Jesus and through Jesus do we have that peace, do we have that life, does the world have any hope at all? God, I want to thank you for this day. I want to thank you for our time together, Lord. We live in tough times right now, and. It seems like every day there is a call for us to compromise our convictions for the sake of peace around us, Lord. May we always 
may we always stand firm in the truth of Jesus Christ, no matter what it may cost us. May we always share the truth in love and hold out the word of life and express how Jesus has died for our sins, Lord. We're definitely not perfect. We definitely are in need, Lord. And if there's need of repentance of anybody, myself included in this place, may we repent, turn back to you, that we may be one, dear Heavenly Father, in sharing the message of Christ that the world will see through us, dear Lord, Jesus. And what he's done for us, how he's the Savior and the only answer to this world's problems, Lord. Help us not compromise in that. In the name of Jesus, I pray if there's any here today who don't know this Jesus, don't know this peace, that they can come and know him today, Lord. Bring them forward and give them freedom, Lord. A freedom that is not dependent upon the world or its circumstances, but is a treasure up in heaven given by you freely through the blood and sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray in the name of Jesus, you'll help us walk forth in this world right now. It seems so full of trouble with the life-giving hope of Christ, Lord, uncompromised around us, pointing people to the only one who saves. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.